G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate and postdoctoral research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ, and don't laugh you too, and I am your host for Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and a CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts and Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdocs are doing. Today's going to be a little bit different because I'd like to introduce you to Caroline Tuck and Sean Bennett, who are doing a postdoctoral fellowship under the supervision of Dr. Stephen Vanner. Welcome to Grad Chat, both of you. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, now they're a little shy, but we're going to get that out of them. <laughs> they're postdoctoral fellows, they're a lot quieter, but I've, I've actually heard that they can be quite boisterous. So we'll see how we go today. <laughs> see how we go. Mm. Yeah, they're, they're getting further and further into the corner of the studio. I'm a bit worried. <laughs> now, before we get on to your research, I am always curious why people come to Queen's to do their, their studies. Now, neither of you are from Canada, so what made you come here to do your research? Caroline, perhaps first you should come, because you've come the furthest, because I understand you're from my home place, Australia. Uh, that is right. So for me, the reason that I've ended up here in Kingston was really that during my PhD, my supervisors really encouraged me to go overseas for a postdoc if I could. If I was able to travel, they really encouraged that that would be beneficial for my career. That's good. So essentially, towards the end of my PhD, I started emailing around different places and I was fortunate that Dr. Vanna was able to offer me a position here and here I am. And here you are. And, exactly. But you were at Deakin University. At Deakin. Uh, I did my undergraduate at Deakin University and my PhD at Monash University. Oh, Monash. Yeah. Just so everyone knows, they're both in Melbourne. And I'm from Sydney, so no rivalry here whatsoever. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> so, Sean, but you're from the UK, so what brought you here? Yeah, so I did my undergrad in the UK, and that was in the University of Kent in Canterbury. But then once I finished with that, I actually moved over to Sweden, where I did both my master's and oh, PhD okay. at the University of Gothenburg, the Sagrinska Academy there. And after, like, with the four years that it takes during that time, I, I'd always thought that I'd want to stay in academia. Academia. Although I'd already done a move abroad within my sort of research career, I'd always had the idea of going even further, you know, across the Atlantic. Right. And so when the opportunity of a position in Canada came about through contacts with my old co-supervisor, I jumped to the chance, really. As Caroline said, moving around is nothing but good, you know, right. if you're able to do that. I guess you learn different ways of doing things, too, and mm -hmm. get different perspectives in, in your work. Absolutely. Definitely. And how different labs work and... Absolutely. You it's can learn lots from valuable. that. So, but before we go into your specific work here, what were you both studying in your PhD? Is it along the sim similar grounds or is it was it totally different? Sort of. So we're both looking at diet in a way. So my background is that I am a dietitian. Right. So I was looking specifically about how we could change diet in gastrointestinal conditions to improve patient symptoms. So my PhD was a bit more looking at the direct effect of diet on how people feel. Right. And then Sean? Yeah, I mean, so mine was a pretty broad PhD, actually, covering everything from the immune system to diet to the microbiota, all within the, the, the field or relevant to irritable bowel syndrome. Right. Um, so one aspect of it was looking at how the immune system is... Oh, 
activated potentially or immune activation are different in IBS patients. Another one was looking at how going on FODMAP, a low FODMAP diet, which I'm sure will be elaborated on later. Yes, because um, that was a fancy word. Yeah. <laughs> um, how that affects the, the, the bacteria which live in your gut and to see if we can use uh, that to, to sort of predict response to these intervention diets. And the, the, that was the, the primary sort of microbiology and immunology we'll call we'll aspects call of irritable bowel syndrome. Right. <laughs> so did you guys know each other before you came to Queen's, like through various conferences? Because you're, you're sim- in similar areas already. Have you met before or was it just by sure, sheer fluke that you had this opportunity here? And I guess was it a yeah. good thing or not? Have you been to any of the European conferences before? Um, I had actually. I'd been to UEG in Barcelona a couple of times. Oh, so the chance I've been to the same conference. We may have. Right. Yeah. yeah. But other than that, I mean, we have a mutual friend who okay. knew th- know through conferences. Right. Another Australian, actually. Another Aussie. Oh, way to go. We, we go everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but, but Sorry guess, about that, okay. Sean. Oh, no, I know. It's all right. <laughs> But I guess the main was uh, actually taking contact and just trying to figure out how to get into Canada. <laughs> oh, right. Yes. Yeah, that's not, sometimes that's not so easy, particularly on, I, I don't know what kind of visa you guys are on because you're not students per it's se. It's a specific working visa, I think, which if you, have a, if you have a job already lined up and it's within academia, then it's a bit smoother as well. Right. Oh, that's but, good. I mean, even that was sort of quite difficult to try and figure out. It's easy to get, but difficult to work out exactly what you should click online to uh, get to the right form. Well, <laughs> Actually, I found the same too when I was trying to do my residency. Yeah. I was thinking, I just want to speak to someone face to face. It would be no so much easier. Call. Give me a bit of paper, pen and paper mm. and I'll do it that way. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So I'm glad to see it hasn't changed. <laughs> it's still <laughs> hard as now tricky. as it was before. <laughs> okay, so I guess, well, I guess we should get on to what you're doing. So you're both in the same lab. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Under Dr. Vanna. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And that's in the medical de- medicine department, or was yeah. it under pathology or something it's like the, that? The Gidru wing of Kingston General Hospital there. Okay. So and most uh, of your work is out of out of that out of the hospital area. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of okay. So you're studying then, and as you alluded to a little bit before, Caroline, the role of diet in gastrointestinal disorders like irritable bowel syndrome on gut health. Firstly, what kind of gastrointestinal disorders are you looking at in particular? As I would assume, I mean, I'm assuming there's a lot more than just IBS. I'm using a little acronym there. <laughs> and then why look at the role of one's diet? Nice work on the acronym. Yes, Thank IBS you. is correct. because <laughs> I heard Sean say it. <laughs> um, so yes, there's lots of gastrointestinal conditions, unfortunately, for those that suffer from them. But at Gidru, where, where we're doing research, most of our research focuses on either irritable bowel syndrome, so IBS, or inflammatory bowel disease, so IBD. Okay. So that would include things like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Oh, okay. So most of the research within our group focuses on one or both of those conditions. And the reason that diet is starting to become kind of increasingly popular to look at from a research perspective, but also patients themselves, is partially because a bit in terms of what Sean's background is, is that we're getting better and better at understanding the microbiota or the bacteria that are in our GI tract. Mm -hmm. And we know that the the microbiota can alter these conditions. So um, we think it might be involved in potentially why people get these conditions in some cases, or it might be involved in how severe the condition is possibly. There's a lot we don't know yet, but we think that those bacteria are really important. 
And the research is showing also that diet can really influence those bacteria. So it can change the types and the quantities of those bacteria. So probably in the last sort of five or 10 years, I think research worldwide is more and more looking to diet. Mm -hmm. Can we change what we're eating to modify these bacteria to hopefully help these conditions? It's a pity you can't bring someone back from like 200 years ago when the yeah. diet was different to see what how It'll what was going on in their guts mm. absolutely in terms of those I mean, microbes what, what they sort of like i guess um one thing which people look at is uh, indigenous tribes instead um, right who sort of like have those sort of hunter-gatherer uh feeding habits if right you will. right uh, and what they actually find is that they have a very diverse sort of gut ecosystem there i mean if you imagine the gut um the bacteria living in there is like a, a rainforest, if you will. Mm-hmm. So you've got all these bacteria filling various niches. Um, and what you want in any uh, e- ecosystem is a good diversity. Um, and so by eating a lot of variety of foods, you, you force this diverse ecosystem, which is always beneficial because then you're getting the most out of the food which you're ingesting. Right. Because as humans ourselves, we lack various enzymes to be able to get the full range of nutrients out of food. So by having different bacteria, we ensure that we're going to get the beneficial things. So it's not just a matter of having a pot of yogurt every morning with the right probiotics and stuff like that. Unfortunately, not. No. No. <laughs> people always want like the one answer. And I yes. think... Sean's got it right there. Diversity is probably the one answer, but it's right. probably the hard answer. <laughs> it must be hard for both of you when there's so many diets out there from, you know, the keto diet seems to be the popular one at the moment. <laughs> it must be hard for you because, I mean, how do you find your subjects to, well, I guess, what is your methodology that you're using in your research? Because if you're looking at people and testing them, Everyone's on so many different dietary restrictions here and there for what for whatever because it could be, have allergies as opposed to those trying to lose weight or, or for whatever reason. But there's so many different ones out there. So mm. how how yeah. do you choose your subjects and what is your methodology? It's um, a really good question and something that I think has been a challenge with doing dietary research. I think prior to the last ten or so years, a lot of people kind of didn't look at diet because it mm-hmm. was too hard for that reason. You know, right. you can't you can't put a secret diet in a pill to consume and patients won't know what it is. Yeah. You, you just can't <laughs> conceal it the same way that we can with medication. And it's absolutely a, a big challenge that we have whenever we're looking at diet for that reason. Can um, make placebos like you can make muffins which include a certain thing and which don't include a certain thing so they right. look and feel like a muffin but one is laced with something <laughs> love that lace bit of rum bit of rum yeah, exactly. <laughs> absolutely actually the the team that i did my phd with that's kind of what we were well known for was that we made all of the food for our our patients in our studies right. and we hand delivered it it was all frozen pre-ready and we would have exactly that we'd have a spaghetti bolognese that contain onion and garlic and one that didn't and then there's right. you can see those differences but obviously there's limitations in terms of how expensive and you can't run a study of a thousand patients and or provide them food for six weeks it's right. just right. Not something feasible. which um as you say though like when picking patients and subjects for these sort of like studies is one thing which is actually becoming an issue is the fact that some studies which were performed in sweden for example where the population are generally more um, diet savvy shall we say who sort of do read up and be like oh this low FODMAP diet or this diet and I've already started to remove this from my food is that when you then compare a similar study which is performed in the UK for example where perhaps 
you know, we're eating our pie and mash and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Good old fish <laughs> um, and chips. Yeah. So, so, so when, when, when people go on a, a study diet, removing certain foods, you're likely to maybe see more of an impact in, mm-hmm. for example, the UK right. study than you would in the, the Swedish study. Right. Because they're already at a lower threshold. They're already mm-hmm. lower. So to try and get lower from one to zero is a lot difficult to go from five to zero. Right. Right. And this was something that I was hoping moving to Canada. No one would know anything here yet. <laughs> and I'd have all these patients that never heard of what I was doing. And then I got here and then they do. They already know. That's a shame. <laughs> but I guess what's one of the things that must be interesting for you, because whatever you system you come up with checking, can it then be used in, say, Sweden and the UK and Australia, New Zealand, Japan to test other population groups? Yeah. To 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 see the differences and and just looking at what what is assumed a normal diet in that particular population. But I know that's changing now. So you know. Exactly. So, you know, it would be interesting to see what's happening there in, say, the older generation and now the younger generation who are mixing Western food into their diet, which isn't necessarily the better choice. So, yeah, there's kind of two answers to that in terms of what we're looking at, because both the diet and the microbiota before we might try an intervention is important. So ways in terms of how we look at diet might include trying to get people to really carefully tell us what they're eating, which right. is harder than kind of you yeah, might Yeah, we always think. want to cheat. And like, do you really remember what exactly you ate for lunch yesterday and exactly how much of it you mm-hmm. ate? So we have ways, like often we're using, for example, a seven-day food diary where we're getting people ideally to actually weigh what they consume and, right. and record it for us. And we do it over... Sort of multiple periods as well so we can see what they eat before they might start the intervention with us and then what they're consuming during the intervention as well um, so in a study where we're not providing all the food something like that can can be a way around it right right but absolutely how they how they eat before they meet you and before they start an intervention is going to influence what their response might be. And definitely in this area, because diet is becoming more more important and more, um, I guess, well-known, mm. lots of patients have already tried lots of different things. Mm-hmm. So as Sean said, they might have already cut something out of their diet, which is part of what we're trying to study. I think it's also the easiest thing to change. I mean, it's, like, it's one of the first-line treatments uh, sort of physician will have right. when trying to treat because it doesn't mean going into medication but diet can be and it, easily changed. It gives the patient control as well right like if mm-hmm. you can choose what you're eating and that helps your disease then that gives you control over your disease whereas well, being reliant on medication. So I think for patients it can be can be really good from that point of view and from a microbiota Yeah point of view. so I mean regarding your question there sort of like can it be rolled out around the world because we are very diverse in, in, in diets and that of course affects the the bacteria living in the gut I mean but and there there are basically in one of the studies which we looked at was how to predict the responsiveness of this diet based on the gut bacteria and that was created in Norway actually um, okay. and it's sort of a very Scandinavian diet so yeah pretty much a lot of fish and sort of quite hearty there but then when you like you say think about other nations and the the diet there it's going to have a different bacteria so while they were trying to figure out what is this this healthy gut bacteria profile this sort of 
balanced ecosystem, if you will. They, they took, you know, so many hundred patients and made this meta gut bacteria healthy profile saying that, okay, if you've got levels of this, this and this, then yeah, you're, you're, this is what a healthy individual has. Right. And if you have IBS or IBD, for example, then you're going to have lower levels of this bacteria or high levels of this bacteria. But one thing to consider, like you say, is that if you then take someone from Australia, for example, and put them into that into that uh, study, they're, they're probably going to come up as having some kind of what's called dysbiosis, which is a sort of different composition of bacteria, which mm-hmm. is generally assumed to be of a less healthy state. Right. Whereas, you know, you're, you're fine and healthy. You've just been eating an Aussie diet for the past. Yeah, big band pies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so one thing which needs to be uh, like focused on is maybe it doesn't matter who's there, but it's more what they're doing. And so if you have all the bacteria in your gut, they're, what they're doing is they're breaking down food and they're producing these metabolites, which is the product from breaking down food in the gut. And we need various of uh, metabolites to be healthy, to have a healthy gut. So it might be that it doesn't matter if you have a healthy Scandinavian gut bacteria or a healthy Australian gut bacteria, you're both producing these needed metabolites. So would you use some indigenous groups as your control group, regardless of what country you're getting your other subjects from? I guess at the end of the day, we actually, or science at this stage, doesn't really know what a healthy, mm-hmm. what is healthy. Right. What is She's a healthy microbiota? Yeah, I was like, how do I say this? <laughs> <laughs> I do that sometimes too. With That's a really pretty picture, but you can't see it. <laughs> so yeah, we don't really understand what should we be aiming for, or mm. if we have someone with a, a disease, we know that maybe there's more or less of something but we don't really know how to bring how it back to, to it. normal because we don't really know what right, that is right and i think i mean technology in the last sort of say 10 years has really mm. improved our ability to measure the microbiota and measure what's there right but we're not science is not quite there yet to fully understand what is healthy or normal and it's probably region specific so for us aussies it might be different to to someone over to here from them. the uk yeah for the sausages and yeah, exactly. sausage and mash, tolerable bangers for and mash large amounts of earl grey tea and all that you know <laughs> <laughs> you gotta have the coffee mate you gotta yeah, have the coffee I've been in sweden too long that's definitely just all i drank <laughs> <laughs> all right so what types of dietary modifications can be used then to impact gut, gut health because like i said it's not, and as you mentioned it's not just a pot of yogurt every day (laughs) unfortunately not (laughs) so there would be lots of different modifications that we can use and it would be in some cases individuals so a patient who skips lots of meals and eats lots of fatty foods or drinks a lot of caffeine it might be simple modifications like that that they need but in terms of what our group is kind of researching a lot at the moment is a diet called the low FODMAP diet right so FOD (laughs) it's F-O-D-M-A-P Um, So it was originally designed by the group that I did my PhD with before I was there. But essentially it means fermentable carbohydrates or fermentable sugars. Okay. So it's referring to those um, parts of the diet that Sean mentioned earlier that are not well absorbed. We don't have enzymes to break them down fully, which is a perfectly normal physiological phenomenon right but essentially we don't absorb them well which means that they travel to our colon which is where most of the bacteria are and it means that they get fermented by the bacteria which can produce gas and um, other byproducts that are actually good for us okay so good not bad Mm. good additionally they can sort of make their way to the small intestine beforehand and they're 
osmotic effect, so their right. ability to draw water into the gut right. evidently leads to... Uh, right. <laughs> to put it, Very nicely put. put it nicely. Yeah. <laughs> so so in, in a healthy person who doesn't have any symptoms, they don't have those looser stools or they don't have bloating or abdominal discomfort, they should be eating these foods. They're good for us. Right. But in a person who's suffering from these types of symptoms, if we can reduce the amount of these types of carbohydrates or sugars that they're consuming, we can then reduce that water delivery and reduce that gas and it can help to improve their symptoms. So clinically it's used kind of as a short term, you know, four or six weeks and then patients will re-challenge and test their tolerance to specific foods. So long term they're not on a really restricted diet but they might be avoiding a few specific Right. And I mean, the, the reason why they're, they're not on it long term, even though they might be feeling great, is because we don't, and science in general, don't really know the, the long term impact of being on such a restricted right. diet. Right, yes, because sometimes you can go too far, can't you? It might be good to help you get that balance, but then exactly. you know, go, now have a balanced diet. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> you know, as, as Caroline said, you know, you need to be able to consume these foods because they are beneficial. We have good bacteria which produce things like uh, short-chain fatty acids which maintain the gut health. Um, But by going on this low FODMAP diet, um, we see that the levels of these good bacteria actually decrease. Now, we don't know if that's going to have detrimental effect 5, 10, 15 years in the future. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's only sort of short-term uh, interventions for the time being. Um, ironically, though, these foods are also what's known as prebiotic. So this is food for the bacteria. So, I mean, if you imagine the probiotic being the seed um, yeah. in the garden, prebiotic is the fertilizer for those specific food okay. uh, seeds. There. Right. But it's just unfortunate that in some people, these prebiotic foods cause problems. So we're trying to figure out exactly which one of these might be causing because the FODMAPs are fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides and polyols. Big words. Yeah. <laughs> it just sort of has to be figured out maybe like what one of those might be causing a problem because it might be right. that you can eat the majority of all these FODMAP foods um, but it's just uh, fructan, for example, you know, in garlic and onion, yeah. which is a problem. And maybe in one patient it's one of them and in another patient it's, it, it's one of the others. So is there a way that we can work out in which patient, which one, for example, and the then they wouldn't diet. have to... Exactly, then we wouldn't have to start with such a restriction. What about this, and I've done it myself because my brother told me to do it, <laughs> about when you first get up in the morning to get your guts ready for whatever you're going to put into it that day, you get up and I have a hot, hot water with lemon in it. Mm. To Very help popular. get things I go for apple cider ready. Vinegar, oh, do you? Oh, <laughs> yeah. that sounds awful. I mean, what what about that? I mean, is that just something that we just makes us feel good, or is it? Is there something to it that could help? The evidence for it isn't great. I don't oh, think sad, there's a because I really like that. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but there's probably no harm in it either. Right. So, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know. With that apple cider, they do say it's got maybe some prebiotic aspects to it i mean if you get right. the the non-processed that is like you know you get the organic where you can see it's kind of cloudy i believe yes. it's called the mother or something in there and that is a sort of bacterial cloud in there so that could potentially have some benefit but uh as for it's no hard evidence just acid no and hard water, evidence. basically okay drats okay <laughs> <laughs> so 
what is the impact of these dietary modifications on gut flora? I mean, you've mentioned some of it because it's, it was going to change something inside, which I, then I guess is helping the gut be able to handle the rest of the day. So what, what is it doing to the gut and the metabolism? Because is it is it making the metabolism better as well? Because sometimes people's metabolism are all over the place. Some are really slow, some are really fast. But is it because would it, if a, a change in metabolism be because of some of these dietary modifications? Metabolism is two sort of thing is, is one thing where it's just the rate at which you break down food. Um, but regarding on how the gut bacteria affects that, it's not really going to affect your rate of breaking down food, more about how much nutrients you're going to get from it. An interesting example, which goes into something which some people, well, I guess most people because we work in gastroenterology, the general public might not know so much about uh, what's called fecal transplantation. Right. I've heard of that. That word it's very so uh yeah popular. <laughs> it's very popular uh, <laughs> um, but uh, no so, so basically what, what what that treatment is is exactly how it sounds you you transplant uh stool uh from a healthy individual right. to somebody who has uh, an infection or some problems with their bowels it's primarily used for a, a clostridium difficile infection which is pretty bad when you get it but this treatment has been shown to have good effects on it okay uh, research into other into other um, problems shall we say uh, is still ongoing but regarding about the difference in gut bacteria and uh, how you can how much food you can get out of it or nutrients um, there was actually a case study where a, a mother she came down with this uh, seed of seed infection and this is also before we sort of specifically knew about a healthy gut bacteria ish so they 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 needed a donor and they thought well you know they'll stay within the family because why not you know that's mm-hmm. better than a random stranger so they they took a stool from her daughter and her daughter was slightly large shall we say and the mother had fine transplant and everything all went fine but uh, noticed that she was actually gaining weight Oh, is that right? And this is sort of without her having changed her diet or level of activity. And so that that sort of sparked more interest into, well, the only thing which has actually changed is your gut bacteria. Yes. So there's research going on uh, around the world, um, specifically uh, Frederick Beckhead at Sargrenska, looking at this sort of obese gut bacteria profile, if you will, and and how if you transplant stool from an obese person into a mouse, which is of normal weight, it will eventually gain weight, even though it's been on a sort of standard diet. That's amazing. Mm, it's interesting. It's a bit scary, it? actually, yeah. isn't it? And it's then being applied to other things where studies are looking at the ability to use these fecal transplants, right. but then we're kind of a bit worried, like, what else are we transplanting? You know, that well, could yes. be obesity, but there's all sorts of other things. You know, how can we choose what a healthy donor is? I'm using the commas again, quotation marks. Yeah, if we, so you, and we don't really I guess know. in that fecal matter, you can't go and break that down to see what's in there, or is it just whatever's in there, the way it reacts to the gut that it's gone into? Well, I mean, some one it's hard has, to know, what, yeah. it's, it's a crude method. I mean, it's basically, mm-hmm. yeah, you take the stool and you put it in a blender and then you transplant it in. Uh, some people saying it's the saddest blender in existence. <laughs> or, or you can swallow Want it to... in a pill if you'd prefer oh. to Which take it that way. Pretty big pills, but they're yeah. about the size of the end of your thumb. <laughs> okay, And well. they normally come in like translucent cases, but they're frozen. So you kind of want to eat them. Not that I've ever done this, but I've seen <laughs> the slides. Eat them before the frost kind of disappears there and... Also, I can't imagine your burps being too good after one of those transplants. Nope. But what? <laughs> but uh, what people, what, what researchers are trying to do though is, is to basically um, try to make their own uh, 
trans uh, transplantable stool. So they're, okay. they're they're looking at what the what bacteria constitutes or what is found in a healthy gut. Um, so fecal bacteria, fecal fecal bacteria, Prausnitzia, I believe, is one, and uh, Bifidobacteria is one, which most people might have heard of. Yes. So they make their own sort of cocktail of these good bacteria and then transplant that instead uh, right. into the colon. But that's assuming the gut it's going into is okay with that. Yeah, Correct. I mean, what another way it's you all, could it's do all it. bit hit and miss, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> We're making our research sound really uh, precise, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh no, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of lots of stuff there that you can move forward <laughs> because. I mean, just I, I mean, anything to do with diet and all that sort of thing opens up all sorts of questions for people Absolutely. because mm. we're all different shapes and sizes for whatever reason. And as you mentioned earlier, diet is probably one of those easiest ones to point a finger at first, yeah. um, or lack of exercise is probably a second one, kind of thing. So um, there's lots there we can we certainly have to learn about to make things easier for all of us. Absolutely. <laughs> So with this research you're doing, what are you hoping to do next with it when, you've, when you find out whatever you're looking for in what's happening in people's guts with your study? Um, what are you hoping to do with it next? I think what would be great is if we could be able to predict a little bit better what patients, how patients will respond to different mm-hmm. dietary modifications. Right. So at the minute, working as a dietitian, when I see patients, I essentially have to tell them that we're going to go through a process of trial and error. Right. And what right. we try will be based on evidence. So we will try things like the low FODMAP diet that is shown to improve symptoms. Right. But it doesn't work in everyone and we basically need to try it, see if it works. If it does, that's great. If it doesn't, we need to try something else. And, and this, would you use that also too for people have a, there's a lot of people have got more allergies for various foods these days. Is that something that this could be used for as well? some of the things that you're looking at yeah so I guess an important distinction to make is between a a true allergy like an anaphylactic style allergy versus what we're kind of referring to more as intolerance so the area that we're working in is more that sort of intolerance where you eat something you can eat it but it might make you feel unwell so it's it's I guess less life-threatening as such but you'll still suffer from from that right so yeah I think from from our studies currently we're running a study where where we're getting patients with irritable bowel syndrome to try a, both a low FODMAP diet and a high FODMAP diet, so for three weeks each. And we're taking lots of different measures, everything we can, blood, stool, urine, right. um, taking lots of questionnaires and getting their diet information. And my hope would be that there's some something in there that might help us to, to identify who's going to respond better to less of these carbohydrates and we've had some patients that have actually responded better to the high FODMAP diet which is kind of the opposite to our thinking but maybe they're the ones that would respond better to changes in their microbiota and the prebiotic load is better for them. Right, right. So perhaps there's a way we could distinguish that and then take out that sort of total trial and error piece that right. we're, we're currently using. That's brilliant, though. be pretty cool. It'd be very, very cool. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's interesting because I always ask people extracurriculars. Uh-huh. What, are, what other things do you do while you, well, apart from your studies? But for, but for you two, <laughs> it seems it's all work and no play for both of you because your extracurricular was, they're, they're totally on a mission here, Basically, you're looking for study participants, Absolutely. which which for any researcher, 
it's always difficult, I, I know, to try to get people in to be to be your subjects. So anyone out there who wants to be a part of this, they're looking for healthy controls, people with irritable bowel syndrome or infra- inflammatory bowel disease, but th- those ones, maybe they can contact you. Is there, is there yeah. a place for them to contact you? Absolutely. So I guess I'll briefly tell you of two sort of main studies we're running at the minute. One of them is that dietary study that I mentioned. So we're really looking for patients with irritable bowel syndrome for that one. So you're welcome to contact me. Um, so the number is 613-549-6666, which is the KGH number, and then extension 6526. Okay. And then there's another study that we're running in our department, which is actually really exciting. It's a Canada-wide study, and we're one of the recruiting sites. And we're looking for patients with irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, and healthy controls. So anyone really anyone. can be involved. Um, <laughs> and, essentially, and you might find out you're actually not as healthy as you thought you were. <laughs> Sorry, shouldn't put that in. <laughs> um, so essentially, the reason it's exciting is we're trying to recruit 8,000 people across oh, Canada. Oh, stress. So That's a lot. it's going to be massive. And obviously, lots of data will come from that. So the main thing that's involved is it's actually across four years, but you just provide samples for us once a year for those four years. It does involve a stool and urine collection, but you can do that yourself at home and bring it in. (laughs) Um, In that brown paper bag. (laughs) Exactly. I'd prefer if they do it ourselves. It's also a blood sample and some questionnaires. So for that one, I would suggest calling um, Celine Morissette, who is based at Hotel um, her number is 613-544-3400 and she's on extension 2479. Okay, so what we'll do with both of those, we'll put those on our School Graduate Studies website as Great. well. Thank so you. if anyone wants to do that and maybe we can get CFRC to put something up as well, that would be great. We would love um, that. Because, like I said, if you're trying to get 8,000, that's a lot of people. <laughs> and I should mention, if you're not going to be at, if you're at Queen's and you're not going to be here for the whole four years, but you'll be in Canada, there are other sites. So you could do so you some years do the here testing and there. go and do some years elsewhere. Oh, that's brilliant. So, that's well, not a reason not to participate. No, exactly. <laughs> okay, I better see if I'm... What, what group I'm in. Um, <laughs> I can be irritable, whether it's the other one, I don't know. <laughs> so, um, excuse the pun, bit of food for thought there yeah, for all of us. Definitely. Thank you very much for coming on to the show today. It's been fabulous talking to you both, and I wish you both a, a lot of luck with this because I'm, I'm sure down the track it's going to help all of us. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for, having for having us. us. Yeah, definitely. It's been fun. Talk for another half hour. Or I know. Hour. We might have to bring you back when you've got a few more results and things. <laughs> Sounds good. And Excellent. you can deflate me even more in some of those things that I've been doing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, thank you very much for coming on. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget, you can download this show tomorrow from either iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Podcasts. Just type in a Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. 
infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by Queen's University's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.